Hey there, it's Nick Turzo, and this is The Radical Podcast. No, we won't be overthrowing any governments, but we will be learning from radical creatives who rule the world. Hello, Radicals, and happy holidays. I'm Nick Turzo, and this is The Radical. My guest today is the super talented Elon Rubin. Elon is the youngest person ever inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the band Nine Inch Nails. He is also a monster drummer and songwriter who not only is a member of Nine Inch Nails, but also Angels and Airwaves. On top of all of this, he finds time to make his own records with his band, The New Regime, whose latest release, Heart, Mind, Body, and Soul, is out now. Elon gives me incredible faith in the future generation of music creators. Coming up next, my conversation with Elon Rubin. Hello, Elon. Welcome. I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Uh, you've had uh, quite a year. Um, you How really do we all? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we are collectively in this together. Um, yes. I think some people may think they're not, but it seems like we are. You had a new record um, that you had put out earlier this year, Heart, Mind, Body, and Soul. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, and did so you put, put it out in out. parts? Uh, yeah. So initially it came out in parts. I mean, the, the initial release was a 16-track album, but leading up to it, I would release four songs at a time for each piece of that album. So Heart came out at some point, Mind some point, you get the, the theme there. But when the entire thing came out, it was about a week before lockdown. So it was just the, the, the worst time possible to put out new music. But uh, what can you do? You know, we all got hit with this unexpected quarantine pandemic turn of events. And that's the way that sort of unfolded. But recently, uh, as of this week, a deluxe reissue came out of the album, a deluxe edition, which obviously has the original album, but um, four songs that didn't make the cut, not due to quality, just because sometimes you write a bunch of material and you got to pick which ones play best with, with one another. So uh, there were four unreleased songs, um, a live rendition of something and some demos and whatever. So I think it ended up being a pretty, pretty good um, body of work. And that came out, I want to say this week, maybe last week. I, time doesn't exist anymore, so I have no idea. But, Can I ask you something as an old goat A&R guy? Because, you know, there's a lot of tracks on the deluxe version that's out right now. Um, is there sequencing involved anymore these days? Or do people just not do that anymore? Because it's such a track world. I cannot help but look at everything as a sequence. Now, although I may be a bit younger, I did grow up as an album listener. So I have to view everything as what opens, what closes, and what leads from one song to another. That's just the way I'm trained to listen to music. And it's really... I think the best way to appreciate a body of work. So I have to look at it that way, but I'm glad you mentioned sequencing because when I was releasing the album in parts, I didn't release it as track one through four, five through eight. Each one of those EPs, if you will, had its own sequencing. 
So when the entire album came out, I resequenced it for the optimal listening experience. So that was kind of a fun challenge to kind of look at everything because I, I can't live with just throwing songs out there if they don't make sense with one another. I just can't do it. Yeah, there used to be an art to sequencing and you know, the A&R guys tended to, do it, t- tended to do it more than the actual artists themselves. Um, really? Yeah, because we understood kind of the flow of it. And a lot of times back in those days, people were trying to front load the singles uh-huh. um, to the front of the CD Yeah, at the time. Um, it's not really what I did. It was more how everything came together and kind of blend into each other. And so I had a different way of looking at it. Well, I guess the art of that has been completely lost since people go, give me a song to put out every two weeks or every three weeks. Yeah. And there's no thinking involved there. No, it, it's a jumbo. But the record is fantastic. You're singing. You have a look. I hate you, and uh, because you're so talented, and just you're an incredible Thank musician, you and your voice is so beautiful. It's like, yeah. how could you be this talented? Well, um, it's a result of having no life, no friends, endless amounts of time on my hands. Um, I mean, jokes aside, once the music bug bit me at let's call it eight years old, just because it's been a bit hazy at this point in my life. I haven't really focused on anything else. And what I will say, and I mean this entirely, is that a compliment on my voice means the most to me at this point in time, because it is the last instrument that I picked up. And I picked it up as a means to an end, really, because every couple of years or every few years I'd pick up a new instrument and that obsessive cycle would take place where I would play and play and play and learn as much as I could and experiment. And I was able to write music, but it wasn't until about 18 years old where I thought, what a waste if I've put all this time into learning these instruments and I don't play the most important one, which is singing. So I forced myself to do it really so that I could be in complete control of the writing process and have complete freedom for myself. And I do love to sing, but when you start playing music so young, there is a sort of innate quality to, um, you know, lack of nerves or sort of an embedded comfort with doing something so early on and having done it for such a long time that I, I don't even recall what it's like to say, uh, you know, play a first show or do something like that as a musician. But as a singer, it's, uh, it's just the newest thing, the newest tool in the toolbox. And although I've been doing it for a long time now, I, for all intents and purposes, started as an adult. So just mentally, it's, it's a slightly different part of my brain, I guess. Yeah, did you just, I mean, obviously... You are, something's in your DNA um, that makes this intuitive to you. Um, with your vocals, were you able to just to do that on your own? Did you ever say, you know, I'm going to take a lesson to see if I'm doing this right, just to check myself? Well, I actually started with a lesson and I absolutely hated it. I was, I wouldn't say traumatized by it, but the thing about singing that is amazing and also probably the worst part is that you cannot do it with nerves. You have to be completely free and open or it will hinder your performance, your tone, your pitch, all of the above. So as a musician, it's really easy to kind of pull yourself up, 
practice and practice and practice and play and you can even start playing nervous if you had that sort of personality and then as things evolve you you open up but as a singer you have to be ready to go from beat one or you can hear it you know it's the one thing that you can't hide behind so it took me a, a really long time to learn that i mean i always knew i had pitch and, and could sing and uh it, it was natural in that sense, but getting over the hurdle of the initial shyness was some, it was a, it was a tough lesson to learn. Yeah. I've seen people not ever do that. I mean, actually people that yeah. were signed to record labels that still you get when it came down to the vocals, I literally had to fly across country once because mm. they wouldn't perform their vocals. It was like, it's a weird something psychologically. It's very strange. Yeah, you know, with any instrument, really, you can you can hide behind nerves, because you know your your nerves aren't necessarily in your hands, but your nerves are always in your voice if if that's the case. But um, got over that, and like I said, I really enjoy singing. But rather than picking it up naturally, it was I need to do this, and I'm going to do this. Well, sounds like a, a kind of an arc in your life. Um from what I have seen as an outsider anyway. And I'm going to try to put your story together here. There's a lot to it. I mean, you're young, but there's a lot to this story. And I'm going to try to figure out how to do this so we don't, you're involved with so many projects and I don't want to confuse people that are listening. Um, so I'm trying to figure out how to do a really nice uh, way of tying this all together. So I want to stay on the new record. Um, I love the songs. I don't want to dissect songs. I don't really do that here. Um, but I like it though. Oh, I liked, oh, a lot. And you did something, and we'll talk about this because kind of brought to mind my the sequencing part. Um, yeah. I love uh, Struggle a ton. Mm, I you. loved uh, the first track, Away. Fantastic. And then you have this, She Had Me Wrong, kind of tucked yeah. in there at the end, or in the mid-end. That song is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And what I really like about the songs that you have just named is that they're all completely different from one another. Yes. I'm, I'm glad that you like the variety. That's the uh, oddity that is me for sure. Um, how long did it take? Do you guys do this in one shot when you recorded this? Or is this over a period of time where you have to fit them into your other projects? Or how do you prioritize that? The recording took place in two distinct chunks. Um, I the the scheduling or the point in time is blurry to me right now. I know half of it was recorded between Nine Inch Nails legs, where I knew I had a window and figured, let's just go record what I have right now. And I recall being very jet lagged, so I must have come in from the other side of the world somewhere, but um, powered through to record uh I guess it must have been 10 songs because I recorded 20 in total. So it must have done 10 and 10. And both recording sessions, which took place about for about a, a week and a half, I'd say. So I would record an entire song a day. So I don't know if you knew this, but well, I guess you do because we've discussed this already. But I write, play, and sing everything. So when I set up to record, we, we pretty much have to spend a day setting all the individual stations up. We set the drums up, bass, guitar, piano, keyboards, everything, so that once we're ready to work, I just jump from one station to the next until the song is done. And 
since I've never had the luxury of, say, booking out a month of studio time or three weeks or basically more than I need, I always have to be really cognizant of, of time. And I'm always staring at the clock and just trying to get everything done as quickly as possible. Obviously not sacrificing quality in any way, but as you know, what can go wrong will go wrong, whether it's an amp blowing up or a channel strip on the console and things eat up time. So even if you're thinking, ah, things are going great, I'm way ahead of schedule, something goes wrong. So I just had to get it all done and uh, worked out really well. And I was able to record at this awesome place uh, just outside of El Paso, Texas called Sonic Ranch. It's a residential studio. And they actually have a handful of studios, three full live tracking rooms, a couple of mix rooms, even a mastering lab, all the equipment's there. And all of these studios are in the middle of an enormous pecan farm. So uh, you just see orchards of trees everywhere and you're very isolated. And all there is to do really is record. So I love working out there and it was a really fantastic experience. But yeah, 20 songs done in two week and a half sessions. I'm surprised to hear that there's actual residential recording studios anymore. You know, those used to be kind of the flavor and they were fantastic to build this bubble around you, you know? What's awesome is Tony, who's the owner of Sonic Ranch, has just had an enormous passion for music his entire life. And it's his way of really kind of building a world that, that people can immerse themselves in and be creative in. So I love it as a multi-instrumentalist because I hardly take any equipment and I just have access to all these incredible things that make me want to play or make me play differently. And I just have a tremendous amount of fun when I'm out there. I, I hope I can record out there plenty more. But uh, in, in regards to looking back at the making of this album, that is definitely a shining light in that experience. And with the new regime, I mean, is there a the in front of it? I, there's the, right? Yeah, if you, you just type in new regime, you're going to find some weird jazz band and like leather coats. That's not me. Since you do so much of it, right? I mean, it's basically you in a lot of ways. It's you creatively. Hmm. I mean, how do you get your objective feedback? Uh, Do you care? I mean, or do you just say, I operate in my own space and is there someone you go to that's kind of that beacon for you? Who needs objective feedback as a solo art? I mean, that's that's hard. Like, that's a good idea. You're right. Great. <laughs> but uh, no, honestly, um, I'm, I, I keep things very internal. I mean, my oldest brother has recorded, mixed, co-produced everything that I've put out is the new regime. So really, that is the primary wall that I bounce ideas off of. And... As things become more complete, I will show people every now and then if they ask. But I'm not the type of person who who goes out there and asks multiple people, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think? And then I get everybody's opinions, and then I change the song based on that. I just don't function that way. You know, I would understand, I understand that from the perspective of somebody who may not be entirely sure of what they want, but the point from, of the new regime from the beginning is to do what I want. So I'm aware. I'm, of course, if I, if I hit a, a wall temporarily, or if I'm not sure, 
yeah, I'll ask some people who I trust, but um, I just really think that if you know what you're doing and you know what you want and you know how to get there, it's really up to you. Right. I was just wondering if it was ever, you know, a lonely pursuit where you, I didn't mean go out there and kind of canvas people, but you know, mm. you had this one person you could kind of, oh, you know, no, like no. you just mentioned like your brother, you know, who co-produces and such. So. Yeah. So as I said, that's, that's the primary, uh, the wall that I bounce ideas off of, but really, even when we record, it's or even the demoing process. I pretty much have the song done. Then I record it, and it's a matter of you want to maybe try this or try something here or what about this. But it's never a sort of collaborative writing process, and. I don't have anything against that. I just, I really feel strongly that uh, a songwriter, especially an individual who is able to write something, I mean, it's, that's the opportunity to bring the individual vision to life. The same way a composer or a painter would bring a work into being, that's the same thing as a, as a songwriter. Now, if it's a band or if it's a duo and it's a writing team, then that's an amazing thing as well. I mean, everybody who I've ever looked up to has is, is come from that, that method of writing where it's been more of a group effort. But when I write personally up until this point in my life, I really like the individual pursuit of, of piecing everything together myself. Mm, interesting. How many instruments do you play? Oh, I'm going to say, let's say, start with the drums, bass, guitar, piano. I mean, those are the instruments that I play very well. I've had to pick up odds and ends depending on whether I need to do a quick overdub or something with nine inch nails from time to time. But those are the primary instruments that I've dedicated the majority of my life to. Getting no, no brass yet? <laughs> no, in fact, at the beginning... <laughs> At the so with this whole lockdown, I've thought, okay, now's the time where I'm really going to learn about scoring and orchestration and things that have fascinated me for quite a long time now. And in reading these books, I thought, you know what? I don't play a wind instrument of any kind. So what's a quiet instrument that I can learn the ropes with? So I got a clarinet. And I played it for a couple of days, learn. I'm like, okay, this isn't too bad. I think I can, I think I can do this. But then projects started kind of forming themselves or thinking, okay, well, I have this gift of, of time on my hands and I'm not able to go out and tour and do other things. So I'm really going to dive into scoring and all these other projects, learning things. So the clarinet took a back seat, but well, I will pick it up. I just thought a brass instrument would have been cruel to neighbors. <laughs> well, the good news is you probably have some, you know, with your other bandmates, some good mentors. Yeah. If, if that's of interest to you going forward, as it sounds, it is. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your path because it's, uh, to me, it seems accelerated. Um, certainly your talent drove a lot of that. Um, and maybe there are other factors in that. So, can you tell me, I mean, you've got a lot of um, the youngest kind of things before your name, um, which is fantastic. I don't, know how or, I don't know how or why. I just started early, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And how did you get into your kind of first band situation? Well, being the youngest of three boys, my older brothers had already started dabbling with music before I had. 
And I must have thought I could do it as well or got the urge to at least try. So uh, I got up on my dad's drum set that was in the garage and he recognized that I had rhythm, taught me a couple of things and really harnessed my talent, I guess. And once I was able to play and learn from listening, I just kind of hit the ground running and never looked back. Wow. And then you had like a band with your brothers. Is that kind of the first yeah, thing you well, did? Sorry, I didn't actually answer the question. My apologies. No problem. But, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the age gap between my oldest brother and myself is eight years. So when he had his first high school band, I was in that and I was eight or nine years old. So that's, that's how that started. And in hindsight, my career has been a very, it's had a very linear trajectory from one band to the next, to the next, to the next. And really the, the line extends up into my current time. So, yeah. And it's, 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 it's really true that, are you really in the Guinness Book of World Records for youngest person to play at Woodstock in like 99? Not so, in the 60s, 99 folks. Yes, for some reason that is a, uh, that is a. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Do you even, re, do you don't re, do you remember that experience whatsoever? <laughs> uh, only in the absolute vaguest mental fog do I recall, but I, what I will say is that was my first time playing in front of um, a very large crowd. Now, I do need to clarify that although that is accurate, it wasn't on one of the main stages. So I don't know if you were there, but... It wasn't there in 99. You didn't miss anything. But there were the two main stages that were on polar opposites, uh, on opposite ends of this airfield, I'd imagine giant space and then there was a stage and a hangar in between the two so i played in that stage and or on that stage and that was that but i would believe i was 11 at the time but i'll tell you what i mean when um when people mention that it, it's not that it that it bothers me but it's just it, it's it's another lifetime and it really doesn't have anything to do with with skill or any sort of importance and um it is what it is I, I feel like it's one of those things that sounds more impressive than it is of course that's just my perspective but you did mention the i have a couple of youngest titles with things that i've done and i mean most recently i mean well, i'm sure we'll get into it is the the youngest inductee to be in the rock and roll hall of fame and that i have to say i'm far more proud of just because that actually, to me, means something. All my heroes growing up, and still my heroes, I'd always recall either watching them get inducted or hear about them being inducted. So just having the most minor thread in common with, with the greats means something to me. So I've, it's, it's been a really big silver lining for this, this horrible year. But well, it would have been better if it was live though, and you could have attended it. I mean, it's such a that is true. All this that stuff is, is such a bummer to happen. I when... know. Yeah, I mean, it would have been great to play, and uh, I mean, I'm a huge Depeche Mode fan, so just kind of sharing a stage with those guys or being involved with them in some way would have been awesome. But what can you do? You know, it's one of those things you can't be upset about. It's like, oh no, I'm in the Hall of Fame, but I didn't get to play. It's like, oh. Yeah, I get it. 
Yeah, what can so, you do? So connect the dots of the Hall of Fame. The reason you're in the Hall of Fame is for your participation as a member of the Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. So explain to me, how did that um, relationship come together? And uh, that's been all, over 10 years now, right, for you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I joined in 2009 as a 20-year-old. And um, I mean, long story short, I was playing at a festival in the UK. Trent saw me play, wanted to track me down, and he did. So about a year later, so this is in 2008. So later that year, I got an email from him. And we had some mutual friends or associates, whatever you want to call them a friend of mine who had worked with the band for a while. And I just remember waking up one day, getting an email saying, uh, it's Trent from Nine Inch Nails here. Saw you play at uh, Reading Leeds last year, um, in need of a drummer, are you interested? And of course I was. And I auditioned at a sound check on their Lights in the Sky tour, as I said, late 2008, and I got it. So I've been with the band ever since, and very proud of it. It's been an, an incredible experience. And it's just, I genuinely feel that, that time is moving quicker and quicker. So when I look back thinking that it's been over a decade, it, it is shocking to me. But How many cycles is that like in a decade that they would do touring wise? Like um, they have so many other things going on now as composers and such. Yeah, it's prop. I would say probably about three or four distinct cycles, but the touring format for the band has changed. So 2009, for example, the year I joined had a lot of touring and then the band didn't do much or didn't do anything for about two or three years. Cause there was a, I don't know if it was a, sure, let's call it a, a hiatus. And that is when Trent and Atticus started doing film composing. But when we came back in 2013 or 14, that, that was a long year, year and a half cycle. If I can recall correctly, but that, that was, we probably circled the world twice in that, in that span. Then another couple of years and then uh, 2017 and 18. So I guess that's, that's pretty much it. But as I said, it's kind of changed a bit. So the last time we were out, it would be say a few weeks out, a few weeks off, a few weeks out, a few weeks off, and just kind of really target territories rather than being out consistently the entire time. Like country and music I, I, guys. Yeah, I like uh, I like both ways actually because I love to tour. So when you're out and you're doing it, you're just in that mode. But if you break it up, it really does allow you to do other things like recording Heart, Mind, Body, and Soul. I was able to fit it in between these legs of tours where it was nice to be out consistently and then really spend a decent amount of time in the studio and then be back out. And I just, I like to keep busy and be productive. So whether that's on tour or in the studio, I, I make the best use of the time that I can. So um, aside from your own project, aside from the Nine Inch Nails, you also are somewhat a member of Angels and Airwaves with Tom. Is that true? Yes. Yeah, yeah I've been a member of Angels since probably 2012 or 13, maybe. So, yeah. Um, and that's less touring. That's more studio, right? That's mostly studio? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's hard to answer that. I mean, if we look back, it would appear that way. So when I had joined, the band was touring. And we then did 
the album The Dreamwalker, which was pretty much Tom and I down the middle in terms of writing, just really collaborating on on everything. But at that time, I was out with Nine Inch Nails and he was out with Blink-182, so we'd have to find moments where we were both in San Diego at the same time. When that album came out, we actually ended up not touring on it and not playing live for six years or seven years or whatever it was. So obviously, no shows throughout that time, and we had recorded some EPs and, and bits and pieces throughout the the leading years up to... 2019 where we were writing and recording but we actually went out and had a great tour of the US and things were really looking up as far as how much time we were going to be spending on the road but coronavirus covid-19 whatever you want to call it happened and all the dates were scrapped so this year was supposed to be extremely busy between angels and nine inch nails and the new regime i mean the new regime was out on tour and had to go home because of lockdown, which was uh, really unfortunate. But yeah, so been a member of both for for quite a while now. Pretty impressive. So look, I'm beyond impressed, like with your confidence. I mean, you have this amazing, seems like discipline, you. Um, you know, because a lot of people have this rap on musicians, right? They're lazy. They don't work that hard, blah, blah. You know, this stereotype, right? Um, but you're so pro. pro- right, go ahead. Sorry to cut you off, but it's that stereotype that drives me insane. Not that it's undeserved. It is deserved. And those people who check those boxes of either lazy or don't work hard enough, especially in music, drive me nuts because it's not an easy thing to do. And for those who have had the the good fortune to be lucky, because luck is a huge piece of the pie, as I'm sure you will agree with me. I agree. For the people who don't make the most of those opportunities or those good fortunes absolutely infuriate me. And that's also part of the reason why I started the new regime, because I always felt that people didn't work hard enough or they took things for granted and they took their sweet time. And I always thought if only I had the control to work at my pace, I would only then get what I wanted to get done. And I still don't feel like I'm doing enough. That's why I, as I said a few minutes ago, I really just try to find the way to be most productive with my time. So yeah, my apologies. this is like your this is go ahead. No, I said my apologies for cutting oh. you off. Oh, it's all good. And this is like your fifth album, right? Is yeah, the regime I mean, or something? It's the third full length, but okay. I did two two EPs as well, which really are about albums length. They're eight songs a piece. That's not an EP, really, but. <laughs> Uh, you know, we'll overachiever a, you are. Call it a '70s album. Well, honestly, I hate the term EP because this could just be my misconception, but it just feels half-assed to me. It's like we could put together an album's worth of material, or these songs didn't make the album. So here's a coll- a small collection of songs, and I hate that. But with eight songs, that's a, that's a sizable chunk of music where sequencing comes into play, and you can really take the the mode of, of dynamics from many places and, and go to many places and, and achieve something there. Whereas if you put out a couple of songs or a few songs, and like I said, that's why I had an issue with, with Heart, Mind, Body, and Soul being in chunks. But at the same time, I'm not going to put out a 16-song album in, in 2020 and expect 
people to sit there and listen to it. Right. You know, it's that just, sense. I get it. Yeah. But sometimes EP like, um, you know, with Alice and Shane's when we did them, we did jar of flies and stuff. And really for them, what it was is a creative endeavor, um, to not have to go in and make that studio album that sounded the way their sound is. It let them explore and expand their sound by doing something a little out of the box for them. So for them, it was kind of an interesting creative exercise in between studio albums. Mm. That's the way we looked at it, I think. So. And how many, how many songs were on that? Uh, five or five or six, I think, on each of those. Something yeah. like that. Okay. So, um, so you, I read, like to, um, which seems kind of in your um, focus, that you like to kind of deconstruct other bands and musicians a lot of times to see how they did what they did. Is that true? Did you have a little I bit do. of a reverse engineering process going on? I do. Um, I mean, particularly Beatles stuff, just because I mean, really they, they, they did everything in terms of actual songwriting. And uh, of course, I'm not saying it all begins and ends with the Beatles, but really they did everything. I, I mean, I really don't know how else, how else to put it. So, but anything that I like, I, I figure out. The reason why I mentioned the Beatles specifically is because I either have a, their songbook at my piano or close by to the couch. So if I'm watching TV or if I have an acoustic guitar, I just go and sing through those songs. And if I warm up my voice, Yes, I'll occasionally do the um, boring exercises and whatnot, but I do like to warm up just singing songs. So I do like to deconstruct, but that's all across the board, whether it's bands or if it's classical music. I mean, really, I think that's the, that's the, the best way to, to learn. And there's so many things to learn, whether it's structure or why do I like this bridge so much? Why do I like the change there? And you just figure out there, there's sort of, either go-to key changes or, or modulations that they'd use. And, oh, I love this harmony. What's that harmony? And there's so much of that within the Beatles catalog, especially since the songs are very succinct, that there's, there's always something there to, to pick up from. And then, of course, things can get more complicated. Um, let's say for, I mean, I'm not nearly as, as big a Beach Boys fan as I am a Beatles fan, but just harmonically and, and chord changes, there's so much to pick out from there. And it's the same thing as, say, learning your favorite riff. I mean, any guitar player is going to pick up a guitar and learn their favorite riff. But why stop there when you can see what the bass player is doing against that riff or what the singer is doing above the riff? And I, I can go on tangents, so feel free to stop me at any given time. I mean, Led Zeppelin is my favorite, and anybody who's watching this and is either read or heard an interview with me is probably rolling their eyes because I mentioned these things over and over and over again. But um, the way those guys played, they're, they're each my, my favorite musician. So it's not like it's the Bonham obsession that drives me with that band, but you, you, you get a feel for the way the drums and the bass locked in against the riff. And then you see what Robert Plant would have done as a vocalist on top of riffs. It's very hard to sing on top of riffs, usually, in a creative, melodic style a lot of the time. And those are the kinds of things that, as time goes by, that I'm, I'm locking in or have locked into and picked up on. And anything that I enjoy listening to 
there's something where I go, what did they do there? I really like that. And it could be, uh, I mean, for example, I was going through key change sort of modulations and I do have an interest in the, the nerdier side of music. I mean, the nuts and bolts of music theory. I don't by any means write that way, but I love knowing the way things work. And I was going through these things and something unlocked from like, oh, that is the, those are the chord, the, the, the modulation in Mozart's Requiem that I've always loved. And it's something called a German sixth. And it's one of those things where now knowing what that tool is, I know what that sounds like and what that feels like. I can incorporate that into something. So um, once again, whatever it is that I love, I, I want to know how it works. Well, and it gives you that holistic view, right? That a lot of people as players live in their little world and, you know, the ego gets in the way and you have a holistic view of music by playing all these instruments and trying to understand how these all interact with each other. Yeah, I, I never understood the, the sort of stigma towards actually knowing how music works that musicians have had where they somehow think it's going to hinder their creativity. And I think it's phenomenal because it's the equivalent of somebody wanting to be a writer but not knowing how to spell or, or use grammar. That's, it's, it's really close to that. And for music, I don't understand where that comes from, where it's like a painter not wanting to know perspective. I, I don't understand it. And as I said, I don't write coming from that place. I, I always write from an instinctive place. But knowing the way things work only helps, especially if you find yourself in a creative corner where you're thinking, I'm not sure where I should go right now. But when you know how things work and you know, you know what key you're in or, or what it is that you're going for, it's a lot easier to get there, you know? So I do enjoy that side of music. And you seem somewhat entrepreneurial too. I mean, is it true you kind of co-own a drum company? But I can see you like having a label at some point because you have this deep knowledge and understanding and I think you'd be helpful to other artists. I, I can see you identifying talent too. Wouldn't that be the worst idea though, to start a label? Look, <laughs> when you get wealthy enough, you can start a label, I guess. But <laughs> I hope you're right. No, it's, it's tough. I mean, um, I definitely, I, I think I can help quite a bit, but um, where music is at and where music has been going, where it is going, can be kind of scary. And I don't necessarily think it's, it's because of the individuals, because you're always going to have people who are working on great things and people who are working on not so great things. But what people on the label side of things get excited by or think that they can sell is what is often scary. And I'm not having the sort of anti-capitalist view of labels. I mean, music has always been a business, but I don't think there's any denying that the creativity ingenuity and just overall quality has kind of been taking a hit year after year after year where I don't know what we're going to end up with, you know? So I hope things are, are heading in a more positive and exciting trajectory, but I, who knows what's your take on it? Well, look, the only weird thing I see that's, and I feel that, and I don't want to be the old guy that just buys that, you know what I mean? Because my generation's probably just, wailing to the gods that there's no talent out there anymore and people don't know how to play their instruments. But then I'll go on Instagram mm. and I'll see these young kids, teenagers, mm. 
playing guitars, playing songs that my guys wrote that we made those records with. Mm. And they're really good. And they seem yeah. really dedicated to it. So I'm thinking, something's got to give. How can this be going on? And then this other thing going on. So I well, feel positive about it. Yeah, well, that's, that's the most um, irritating part or frustrating part is that it's not that the talent is not there. It's that the interest in the talent isn't there. So especially with, uh, and, you know, I don't want to sound like that, that old guy, you know, get off my lawn, kids, that sort of thing. But uh, it's 32 it, years old. Yeah, but it, it's, it's crazy that you can have some um, TikTok video and there's a song on there and all of a sudden that song's massive and then somebody gets a deal or somebody blows up based on this clip of music that's in the background. And it's, uh, it's just, it's crazy. And it can be anything. If something is proven to be popular, the bet is hedged and that will be invested in. And look, there's always been crap out there. Every single decade has had crap. But I feel like the, the, the pie chart has been a little more evenly distributed between this will sell in the meantime, this will continue to grow, and then this will be an experiment. We'll see where it goes. Whereas now it's like this has been proven to sell. These are the guys who have already been selling. And the, the experimental piece of that pie is practically non-existent. Well, the major labels are out of the equation because they've abdicated um, their responsibilities um, at identifying talent and actually developing it. Um, to I, the, uh, you put that beautifully. Yeah, they've abdicated it to these platforms. And it's a shame, you know, because when I was doing it, and I don't want to bore you, this is an interview with you. Not boring was, at all. I was trained by guys who worked with Miles Davis, hmm. Bob Dylan, and hmm. Springsteen. And I yeah. was the last guy in that lineage. And I'm hmm. in my 50s. Hmm. I've never passed that on to anyone else. So it ended. Hmm. So that's my frustration. And that's why I love having a discussion with someone your age about this who hmm. respects it and understands it and hmm. is worried about it. Yeah. And it's, a, it's unfortunate of an extremely technologically driven time is, you know, data, for example, is is not a good thing for somebody who's emerging because all a label has to do is look at your data. And if your data doesn't look promising, that immediately hinders their perspective of the music or their excitement or even wanting to get involved. Whereas the response now would be, get your numbers up and then we'll talk. It's like, well, that used to be your job. Do you, <laughs> you like this? Do you not like it? If you do like it, let's build it. But now they, they pretty much want the work to be done beforehand. And at this point in time, if the work's already there, who needs them? So it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I don't know how long that model can truly sustain itself. But uh, what do I know? Yeah, they've been, um, that's the one thing they've perfected is their own ability to survive. Um, that's probably where they spend most of their energy, I think because they've managed to do it somehow, and it's shocking to me. You might be a great person to answer this question for me. Okay, try me. So you have uh, a lot of major labels. A lot of them have big pop stars or big acts right now. How much of the label's well-being do you think is coming off of immensely popular back catalogs? Oh, it's still the case. Yeah, yeah where where the talent was invested in, where the risks were taken, 
those risks and talent are paying dividends 30, 40, 50 years later. And where the deals were more unfair, right? To the artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that the label had retained the rights for a longer period of time than would happen in today's world somewhat. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's retaining rights for decades, you know, mm-hmm. 50 years, sometimes you, 30 years. You know. you think that that realization would kind of be a light bulb going off thinking, oh, wait a second, a huge risk was taken at this point in time and it is still paying off tens of years later. One would think. It's, so. it's, it's honestly the only industry where innovation is irrelevant really in terms of finding something new or really trying to push things forward. It's like it works until it doesn't and shit, now we need to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, it's somewhat that. So listen, I don't want to take too much more of your time. I have one last question that I like to wrap up with, and that's, uh, is there anything great you're listening to by others right now? I admit to being the worst at being on top of new music, honestly. And I have really wanted to make an effort to improve that. But as I'm sure with most of the people you've dealt with, if not all of them, you spend so much time writing in recording your own music that the last thing you want to do when you're not doing that is listening to something else. That's fair. Yeah. And you know, I, I don't mean that from an egotistical perspective because I will say to my detriment, I am not on top of what's new. And my knowledge is from, in terms of what's current comes from the music that you can't get away from that is everywhere, whether you want to listen to it or not. So I'm somewhat, in the know there. Uh, and really my, my knowledge of anything recent comes from my, my wife of three weeks now. Oh, congratulations. Thank you very much. She is a music writer. She's with, uh, she's with Rolling Stone and she has to be on top of everything. So every now and then she'd be like, what do you think of this? I'm writing about this. What's your take? I'm like, huh, didn't know about that, but good for you. Well, if you weren't in three bands, I'd, I'll give you a pass for that reason. So, because that, well, thank expla- you. that explains your creativity load. So. I do want to fix it. I'm just going gonna, gonna to go to my wife and say, what should I be listening to right now? Tell me. She's going to handle it. The next time I talk to you, you're going to lay that out so easily for me. So Honestly, she's probably going to say, I've told you a million times and you never listened to me. That's fine. <laughs> but I'll let that one again. All right, Elon, you're the best. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, you're so talented. I hope we can do this again sometime. It was really fun. Anytime. My pleasure. I, I feel like I rambled a bit too much, but anytime you want to do this, you let me know and we will talk again. Excellent. Stay healthy, my friend. You too. Thank you very Thank much. You. Stay safe. Thank you. Well, that's our show this week. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe even learned a little something. To follow what's going on with this podcast, you can go to theradicalpod.com. Theradicalpod.com. You'll find show notes and past episodes and uh, even a little swag there if you want a t-shirt or a hat. Also, I would be honored if you'd subscribe at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next week.